Well, it's Tuesday night, guys. Welcome to Broadcast Team Alpha, the 8 p.m. show. We're so excited to have you here. We're so grateful that we get to do this every Tuesday. Not only every Tuesday, we get to do it Friday at 7.30 for a quick little 30, 45-minute show. And then we get to do it Sunday with our new show, The Paranormal Show. And you have got to tune in and see what's coming up there. We have some amazing, amazing people coming up. I'm so excited. I just want to thank you for being here. Thank you, as always. Thank you for your super chats. When you support the show by liking and subscribing or with your your super chats, that helps us get even better and better guests, of which we have an amazing one tonight, a returning guest. Uh, But before Augie introduces us, to him again. I just want you to know that we did a show, Augie, myself, and Tom, back in the day. If you go back in the archives, you'll probably find it. It was called From Our Planet or On Our Planet. And it was when um, we satirically, or maybe it was real, went to Mars. And we have all of these scenarios. You know, of course, Augie got into a fight with some kind of Mars creature and lost, I think he lost his leg. And we had to put him in something that was like a med bed, but not quite like a med bed. It wasn't really a med bed. It was something even more high tech. But the point of this is, if you feel like going and digging through the archives for that show, for those shows, they were really, really funny. So thank you for being here, guys. Um, Shout out to the Conscious Awakening Network. You can see us streaming over there. We're streaming on 17 platforms here, 32 platforms over there. So we are growing exponentially, and we so appreciate you supporting us in our growth. Augie, please introduce our guest again. Yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. I, uh, I'm going to say tonight we are going on a journey, maybe off the planet, and maybe by the time the hour is over, you just might get this wild idea that maybe time and space is not exactly what we have been told, and the universe and our solar system is definitely not like we have been told in grammar school, high school, college, and by the people that we are supposed to look up to, scientists and so on. There's something that does not fit in the major government paradigm. And uh, to talk more about this, we have Andrew Bashago coming back to Broadcast Team Alpha. Many of you know him, uh, but I want to say just a few things. Uh, Andrew Bashago is an American lawyer. He is a writer, a public speaker, a media personality, and he ran for the presidency. Uh, he's best known for serving um, as a U.S. chrononaut, I think the term is, in Project Pegasus during the project of their time travel and as a U.S. astronaut in Project Mars during the beginning of the U.S. interplanetary exploration that you were never told about. And um, we have a bunch of questions, and one of them that during this hour, maybe we could be able to answer for ourselves, and that why have we not been told Why have we not been told about Project Pegasus, Project Mars? Could it be that maybe 
the world is run by a, a rogue group of people that is answerable to none, and they don't want us to know. Maybe we'll figure this out in the next hour or so. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Augie. Good to be back with you all. Um, I think that I can kind of answer that in the sense that there were really two major discoveries during World War II. In fact, Dr. Harold M. Agnew, who was the science administrator of Project Pegasus under DARPA, had really done everything significant in Project Manhattan, the project to build the atomic bomb. Now, where, where this secrecy about time travel began is they wanted to keep that and have the advantage of knowing what the future held over other countries like the former Soviet Union, China, and so forth. But in the area of atomic weaponry, the original reason for dropping uh, the atomic bomb on, on Hiroshima, Japan, that was suggested or uh, advised to President Truman by uh, Secretary of State Burns was to put the Soviet Union on notice. So in other words, they decided to notify other countries about their atomic destructiveness, but not tell them about the time travel they were mastering, because that would give them incredible intelligence advantage. They would know what other countries might be trying. But the A-bomb and the terrible fate wreaked on the people of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, is something they wanted other countries to know. And isn't it interesting that the, the very scientist who was a prized physics pupil, Enrico Fermi, namely Dr. Harold Agnew, was really principal in both. One that they decided to tell everybody about, make them afraid of our A-bombs. One that they wanted to keep secret as the principal way of getting advantages over other countries. Because we would have we would have time and space as our new frontier, but they wouldn't. That's really what would cause the particular project secrecy around Project Pegasus. Now with Mars, that was more sensitive than that. The reason that Project Mars was kept secret as essentially a space program is that during uh, Apollo 17, our ship was chased off the moon by six extraterrestrial species. And we went to Mars to, to get, you know, to get the high frontier, so to speak, and be able to protect the earth from Mars with the moon having been taken by extraterrestrials. That's why, for example, after landing six times there, Apollo 11 to 17, or trying to, um, and allowing what, what was it? 12 Americans to walk on the moon. Three years later, in what? By 1972, we didn't go back to the moon. And they even tried that, that gag with Bart Sabrell, where he had them put, swear, you know, put their hand on a Bible and swear that they walked on the moon. Well, they abused Bart Sabrell as part of a psyop. You know, uh, Buzz Aldrin punched him, and astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Mm-hmm kicked them in the backside. That was all theater so that, they, that people would be dissuaded to think about, wait a minute, the question is not whether we went to the moon. The question is, 
why after going for three years, we didn't go back. I mean, nobody ever asked that. So that whole Bart Sabrell incident was a disinformational ploy by NASA. NASA is essentially a disinformation agency operated by the U.S. military. And the U.S. intelligence community was very disappointed with it because we were supposed to go back to the moon. So they knew they were lying to the country, and it was actually uh, essentially uh, an intelligence committee program that decided to start putting people on Mars through a revolutionary device um, where we'd get there in, you know, minutes, not not hours. Yeah. It was known that, as an arc. Were they using portals? For that, or was they using electronic equipment that uh, they had created? The latter, and they it was called the Aeronautical Repositioning Chamber, or ARC, also known as a jump room, also known as a, uh, a space elevator. So when I was going to, to Mars, it was going even faster than a rocket would have gone. But we first sent Americans via rocket in 1964. We sent two astronauts up there, and they died from exposure, as revealed in those French intelligence documents that Barack Obama and Regina Elvira Dugan and I were allowed to read when we were working on the CIA's threat assessment of the Martian humanoid civilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there were there were more than him. There were other people also. There were several people that uh, you went there with. Right. I, in fact, when I came forward in 2009, I brought forward four of my fellow astronauts, William Brett Stillings, Bernard Mendez, William White Crow, whose original name was William Paris. I met him when I was fourth grader working on Project Pegasus. And Dr. Ralph Kennedy Johnston Sr., also known as Ken Johnston. And White Crow once told me that every time we were up there, there were about 1,500 Americans on the surface of the Red Planet. So I was by no means a singular American to be going up there. But what I was doing, I was going to UCLA at the time, and I would drive down the San Diego Freeway to a Hughes Aircraft building at 999 North Sepulveda. And there, Howard Robart Hughes, the legendary aviator, was working on the fourth floor. But wait a minute, he should have been dead by then, because they said he had died in what, April or May or April of 1976? He actually lived an additional uh, 25 years and died not in 1976, but in 2001, right around the time of 9-11. So that's been validated by um, a biographer of Hughes named Major General Mark Music. He's become a personal friend of mine. Hughes did not die in 1976 on a trip back from Latin America to Texas, to Houston, Texas. He actually died in 2001 and uh, in his early 90s. And he was the director of Project Mars, just like 
uh, Harold Agnew was the director of Project Pegasus. I had a very interesting life this time, having access to such brilliant scientists and, and, and engineers. And my dad was one of them. You know, my dad, after that famous um, July 1952 overflight of our nation's capital, by nine UFOs clocked at 7,000 miles per hour, my dad was visited uh, at his work at the Okanite Company in Paramus, New Jersey. And there, a colonel from the Air Force ordered him to report to Curtis Wright Aeronautical Company in Wood Ridge, New Jersey, to work on the metal alloy by which the ramjet would be built. Now, the ramjet, of course, was intended to be a supersonic plane that would chase the ET craft away from our planet. And he succeeded at doing so. But the really interesting question for me as his son, after my dad did something so illustrious, now that I've mentioned it on about 100 radio shows, why is the story of my dad's interaction with aliens, with extraterrestrials, literally building one of the devices to chase them away from our planet, why is it never on um, that show on TV? Well, ancient aliens or paranormal caught on camera. And that's part of American history. And so I'm, I'm quite happy that I've been injured fulfilling my dad's request to tell the world and you know, this country about his engineering accomplishments. They're not sharing it on ancient aliens. I guess I'm not Anglo-Saxon enough. You know, you don't have, you don't have those ethnics like Polish Americans on such shows. But my dad literally made history chasing the extraterrestrials away from our planet. And they're still working on that. I mean, three different people in my family, on both my my own sightings and those of several relatives, have seen huge aliens above our planet. The one that I saw in Mars Plains, New Jersey, if the three Chinook helicopters were size referenced about the size of mosquitoes, the extraterrestrial craft they were chasing would be the size of a pelican. And I know different people have had such sightings, but my dad was working on that as early as 1952, nine years before I was born. So that's kind of the mess we've been in since 1952, three, four, five, where my dad was working during those years at Curtis Wright, is how do we get these unknown extraterrestrial species away from us? We don't know what their intent is. Now, most of them are nonviolent, but some are not. We have specific cases in which humans from Earth have been mutilated by extraterrestrials. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be the ones who are now getting their jollies, trying to impose it on our children. So some of these extraterrestrial species are not friendly. I was told by a former CIA agent named Richard Cox in Portland, Oregon, I was practicing law um, here in Washington, but I could always just go across the Columbia River to, you know, Portland somewhere, that some of the ETs are being fed the flesh of human children from, from platforms being set out for them to dine from on U.S. Air Force bases. Hmm. So we have been compromised, and the more we come together as a 
common people and start breaking down the compromise that's beset us, safer we're going to be. Yeah, for th this operation on Mars has been going on for a long time. I remember reading about it back in the 1970s when uh, they were talking about Alternative 3. That was the brain drain from Earth where they, uh, the people behind the curtain, so to speak, they recruited the sharpest minds, the engineers and the doctors and the researchers, and brought them to Mars to start a new colony back then. And that well, Alternative 3 was a fictional broadcast by the, I'm trying to think of the name of that British TV station. Yeah, uh, I was just talking about it. Yeah, it was the... Um, it was that, that studio near Cambridge. I, the name's escaping me. But it was it was a fictional show, but it was done so well that people thought it was uh, it was authoritative, you know, it was real. Yeah, so the show the question is though, was there something true behind it? Well, in the sense that I believe they had stated that Alternative Three was undertaken in nineteen sixty three. It was actually 1964 when the U.S. went, but and there were a lot of a lot of uh, snakes on Mars. Believe me, so that that final scene when they see all those hideous snakes is pretty true to life. But I just mean the films were fictional productions, and everybody asked me about Alternative Three. It's certainly a good question, but it's it's not true to life. It was a fictional production. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that could very well be. So, I just want to go. I just want to go back a minute, if I may. Um, and we're talking about authenticity. I'm just curious. You piqued my curiosity about feeding children to extraterrestrials. How do we know that that's happening? Well, I mean, we don't. I was introduced to Richard Cox. His nickname in Portland was Clackamas because he lived there in Clackamas, Oregon, and. She insisted that what he was telling me was true. That could have been disinformation from CIA again, maybe to discredit me about my, the stories mm -hmm. I had to share. I had begun lecturing around Portland right before she introduced me to him. But she just wanted to know that there were sort of abuses that the deep state was committing. And she was always a pretty good person. I first met her when I was on Project Pegasus. She actually gave me sort of series of lectures to not be panicking when I was going in, in time. So I believe she was a white hat. And uh, okay. Richard A. Cox, also, also known as Clackamas, was regarded as a truth teller in the rather awake and aware um, uh, Portland, Oregon community. That's the best I can do, because I don't know whether such feeding of our progeny to a, a negative ET species is happening, but I'm certainly happy to share it with others because I was able to verify his his former employment with CIA. Mm. And then correct me if I'm wrong, because I may have misheard. Did you say that you are, were on Project Pegasus when you were four, four years old? No, I... I no. Um, okay. okay. I, I, I first did time travel when I was six. Ah. with my dad so we could meet with Dr. Agnew at Lano, 
when he was wow. the director of the W Commission, the Weapons Division. And when we came in his office, he said to my dad, how was your trip? And my dad said, fine and fast. And, and Dr. Agnew said to my dad, oh, did you take, did you take the teleporter? which of course would be the Tesla teleporter. And he said, yes, and so did my number three son, Andrew. And then he looked over at me and then Dr. Agnew looked at me and then turned to my dad and said, how old? And we both said six to Dr. Agnew. Well, I was born in September of 1961, so that had to be between September of 1967 and 68. So that marks the beginning of operational teleportation by the the uh, by Lano, the, the uh, Los Alamos National Labs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm interesting to know when you got when you got to Mars. What were you able to ob- see and observe over there? Was there? Uh, uh, they probably didn't let you run around the countryside much, but are there animals up there? Uh, the people that are there are not necessarily all humans. So what did you actually see? Well, we saw about 30 major land animals who survived primarily on eating each other uh, as carnivores. Uh, That's true even on Earth, like Clipperton Island, where all the animals eat each other because they're so... such little food to survive on. That's certainly true of Mars. Now, there were two inevitably lethal predators that we were trained to basically run around in zigzag patterns if they ever got us pinned down. One was kind of a dinosaur-like creature, which was sort of like a velociraptor with a large Tyrannosaurus rex head, but distinctively bird-like head. So there seemed to be a connection between dinosaurs and and aves, you know, birds, as we know them. I think that our modern birds are just tiny little dinosaurs. And there was another one that looked like about a um, a an animal with a lot of legs that looked like a, about the size of a small um, garbage truck sort of a, 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 a maybe a 10-legged creature, which was also inevitably lethal. There were also two humanoid species. We call them Homo martis uh, terrace, or Earthmen on Mars, and they were the descendants of the human beings from Earth on Mars, like during the high Egyptian epoch. And uh, And then there were ones that were literally the original creatures, the original humanoids on Mars, or, you know, Homo martis martis, or or Martian on Mars. There were both, I saw both males of that species of humanoid and females and kids. Um, The kids looked like little young Tibetan kids. The women looked like pretty uh, Asian, you know, Tibetan females of our of our earth but the difference was they had either two three i mean excuse me two four or six arms the men did not the men the men had three arms and they looked sort of like that creature that 
uh, what was it, Marty Feldman, I think, played mm-hmm. in Young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, so now one of those took us and gave us a tour, um, Courtney Hunt of the CIA and myself, of their underground uh, residences, which had sort of Paisley designs and sort of um, nautical type tubular energy systems. And they were using water to power things. Um, and I would always see those people and be somewhat wary of them when I would go through the dilapidated brick city. I would arrive at the jump room called the corkscrew and walk through something we call the dilapidated brick city. And there I would give one of our personnel a, a kind of a computer disc, like the ones we used to call floppy disks in the commercial mm-hmm. sector about 10 years later. Uh, not the plastic ones, but the big solid ones. And he would just sit there and be getting some kind of information from the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica. So I would pick that up at a, mm. a print shop in, in West L.A. and take it over to uh, 99, North, 999 North Sepulveda in El Segundo and then go up through the building and then up to Mars. The building there would morph from a box into a, silver, into a uh, cylinder and then back into a, a box and anywhere from about 10 to 20 minutes, depending on how close or how far away Mars was from our planet. And I would just walk out of the corkscrew and through the dilapidated brick city and give that man working there, who we called Daryl Dragon, because he reminded me of, not me, but we reminded everybody there of, of uh, Tony Tennille's husband, a very taciturn, quiet man named Daryl Dragon. We didn't really like to talk very much. And this guy didn't like to talk to us. I guess we'd make too much noise to keep him safe. So that became sort of my permanent mission was to take that information up there. But we were all assigned different missions like that, ultimately. So, um, Andrew, what do, you, what do you think about, we've had Captain Candy, uh, Randy Kramer on multiple times uh, with his 20 and back agenda um what do you think about that did you ever see him there or no and um i know that he's not telling the truth because in 2014 dr sala michael sala asked him for the name when he interviewed randy asked him for the name of the the wife that he entered into matrimony with on mars who died in his arms after a predator attack. And he said that her name was Deirdre. Mm -hmm. Then um, six years, well, no, not six, three years later, when I interviewed Randy live on stage in Yelm, Washington, I asked him, can you give me the name of any of your comrades from Mars? And he just looked at me. Then I thought I'd I'd give him another chance. And I wouldn't just lie on the estranged wife's statement to me that his his ex-wife Deirdre's statement to me in 2017 that he made up all of his 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 account largely based on my account so I said I know an estranged wife or husband out of bitterness can lie about a divorced spouse so I'll give Randy one more chance so I I asked him on Mad Martian Gary Legere's show the Martian Revelation 
Randy, could you tell me again the name of that wife who died in your arms on the Red Planet? And he said, Doris. <laughs> Recently, in, in December of um, December 17th of last year, I believe it was, he was asked by um, David Farman why the ETs are coming to our planet. And he said, because we make the, the best beer in the galaxy, which yeah, surprised, sounds surprisingly <laughs> like a scene from, from ET, the extraterrestrial, as it is unlikely that you ever forget the name of a spouse, husband or wife, depending on what gender you are, and you never forget the name of one who marries you on another planet and ends up perishing in a predator attack in your arms. Randy Kramer is a fantasist, and I've had multiple people confirm that. I'm just sorry that he picked a name that rhymed with Andy, which I believe was intentional. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much the disrespect I have for Randy. I want him to come clean and just tell everybody, look, I made this up. It's not fair to the brave Americans, men and women, who went to the Red Planet 40 years ago to be stealing their valor. And he needs to know that what he's been doing, calling himself Captain Randy Kramer of the Marine Corps, violates the Stolen Valor Act. Just as calling himself Captain K would obviously be conduct unbecoming, you cannot claim a military status you do not possess. You can be arrested. He was never, and go he to was never a Marine? He wasn't a Marine? He was not a Marine when Ken Johnson and I went to the Los Lunas, New Mexico uh, wow. station of the Marine wow. Corps. And they told us that nobody named Randy Kramer had been in the Marine Corps when he says he was going from, what was it? He said uh, it was, uh, let me say, two, 19, 1987 to... Um, 2004 or something, it was like 17 years. Mm -hmm, they right. said there was nobody by that name in the Marine Corps during those years. Um, and we have never had a captain named Randall or Randy Kramer ever in the Marine Corps. And we suggested, well, isn't this a violation of federal law? And they said, yes, but it looks like we're just ignoring the guy. He's never been in the Marines. Now, he, he did a very clever trick to suggest that he was. He, he basically said that he was in the special section of the Marine Corps. Well, as an attorney admitted at the federal and the state level in Washington, I went into the archives and tried to find such a federal agency. And as a member of the uh, federal bar, I had access to that, and there was no such agency. So that's a very clever trick. You, you claim that you were in a special section of some secret um, military cadre, <clears throat> And you can say whatever you want about it. Yeah. So I think that his uh, very helpful uh, former wife, Andrea, was telling yeah. me the truth. I think all of these things, they go back to the secret space program. And I know there is one because the government has actually confirmed that we had one before that Trump created it. And there are people now, accountants, that has come out of the Pentagon, and they are talking to the fact that 
there's probably somewhere yeah. around $21 trillion dollars missing from the military budget since 1945. Yeah, Augie, yeah. there, there was a secret space program. I was in it. But you're not recognizing what's been happening. There's been a movement to create this form of almost sort of willing suspension of disbelief-based science fiction for individuals who did not serve. And I'm just giving my, you know, my conviction that Randy Kramer is one of them. That doesn't mean there's not a secret space program. That's what I've been talking about. Nobody told yeah. anybody about Mars until I did. What I'm saying is that started a movement of what we call BSAs for bullshit artists. And I'm not going to stand by when I risk my life and possibly damage my vision and kidney function by going to the red planet with individuals who are making up fictional stories. So That's what we've been living with. Yeah. I just want to ask a curious question because, like I said, we had Captain, air quotes, Randy Kramer on several times. And my question is, if he's not telling the truth, how is he so practiced at telling the story over and over and over again pretty accurately except for those couple of faux pas that you know you feel are lethal how does that happen who trains who trains him to be that way if that's what it is community. they receive neuro linguistic programming and speech training to sound ah. incredibly realistic but do you do you have faith in uh, Dr. Brooks Agnew, in terms of being a, a gifted scientist, he told me a few weeks ago that several years ago when he interviewed Randy, everything he had suggested was technically impossible. And that's wow. been one of the patterns that you can find when one of these people who are joining the secret space program m movement, what do they never do? They never tell where on earth they come from when they go to space. They right. never say how they get there. I mean, I can name names, but I'm sure you know many of these people. Right. The, it, it's, it's basically, it's, it's, it's a cultural movement like young Americans got into really bad hard rock when it was hot. This happens right. periodically in American culture. Right. I mean, I like the Beatles more than, you know, I mean, the, uh, the, the Monkees more than most bands from the 60s. Some of the hard rock was terrible. It wasn't even music. But when it became hot, young people got into it. So somebody realized that and said, oh, are these guys like Andy telling the truth about time travel, the truth about going to Mars? They're really pulling some, some followers here. So let's start a trend. Let's start a, a movement to make the secret space from it as hot as hard rock was. And that's all it is. Mm -hmm. But I have caught so many of them in utterly impossible statements. It's absurd. It's like almost like a junior high school set of reasoning. It's adolescent reasoning. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Tony Rodriguez said that what he was asked to do by is make We've talked stars. to obviously pets. Put it right on a show featuring it. Now why in a, a galaxy of thousands and millions of stars would somebody have, somebody have to be retained by extraterrestrials to make stars? Right. That's like somebody asking me to make pizza. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's ridiculous. There, there are things being offered 
by even PhDs who are defending such people that are utterly ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I just want the ones I know were on the red planet with me, now that White Crow is gone, maybe murdered, and the three others are as sick as I am, I think, except maybe for Brett, he was the youngest, to uh, let our t- let's tell our story. Now, there's a, there's a mental disorder that there are people who, when they see the Olympics, like let's say the bobsled in the Winter Olympics, or the downhill slalom, they tell everybody and their mother that they were in the Olympics, and they weren't. They were somebody who saw the Olympics. That's kind of what happened. I, you can ask Dr. Sasha Lesson what that disorder is called, but mm. I think that some of the people making up stories in the evolving mythification within the secret space program are just such people. Mm. They heard me and Stillings and Mendez and White Crow and Johnston telling the truth about our experiences on the red planet. So they began believing that they had experiences on the red planet. Oh, where your wife was killed by predators, and now suddenly, a couple of years later, two different educated men have asked you her name, and you've given a different name no. for right. the wife who was killed on Mars? Come on. Right. Not credit. So I, don't, I don't want to be hard on Randy. I mean, he's done an interesting job at convincing people, but there has been challenges and challenges and challenges presented by his claims. I just have to reject it. Should I just defend my truth and let those mythifying get by with making stuff up? I don't think yeah, that's well, a, position, a position of authority. Yeah, and you, and you know, Randy, um, <laughs> Andrew, excuse me. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your truth, if we may, because there's a lot of people out there that don't understand what you believe happened to you physically as a result of your uh, your interactions on Mars. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, there clearly was no understanding of what would happen from either the time travel stuff I was involved in from um, 1968 to 72 and the Mars visitation I was involved in from uh, 1981 to 84, uh, when I was um, age 19 to 22, there was no baseline by which the American military was ever sharing information about consequences to military or intel project participants. And in fact, they didn't even care. We were known with what's called as what's called ghosts. Ghosts are involved. They're military and intel operatives. I was even given a naval status as a lieutenant, a different name. But even my ID was stolen from me by the CIA. So even today, I can't get my my um, my DD-214 to oh, tell wow. about my service during the day. Is that like being, taken out of me. Is that like being a spook, or is that just a CIA term? No, it's, it's, it's both intel and military, but it's mostly done by CIA. Mm-hmm. I literally I had my, my alias ID card stolen right out of my hands by Courtney Maurice Hunt of the CIA. He'd been with the CIA since the um, since the 50s and the Korean conflict. 
And he laughed in my face as he did it. I think because they're paid by preventing somebody from proving their service. And now I don't have the alternate named uh, ID card that I had the whole time I was going to Mars. So I'm not sure that Project Pegasus and Project Mars caused my current um, illness, but certainly there was no medical monitoring of any of us. All, mm-hmm. all of the Mars people have had illnesses of one kind or the other. Mm-hmm. Could have even been the suicidal mm-hmm. depression that caused White Crow to take his life. I don't know. Yeah. But Ken, Ken Johnston is sick. I'm sick. Bernie Mendez is sick. Uh, Brett Stillings is the only one I haven't talked to recently about whether he's ill or not. Mm-hmm. So I think that people have to understand that things like trips to other planets and time travel have been done in their behalf so they can sleep at night without worrying about being eaten by some predator from outer space. But they didn't really care about the Americans that they assigned to those projects. So I think it's, you know. Yeah, I know that there are other planets that are being visited, but if we go back to Mars for just a second again, I think that it's becoming obvious to even the uh, kind of the casual observer of the planet looking at the pictures coming back. Uh, two, three decades ago, or maybe even a few years ago, everything was brown up there, but not anymore. Now you have blue sky. You have a countryside that looked like Sedona. So they have thrown away the brown filter, and they're letting the truth out. And what I'm seeing there also, in order to have blue sky, two things have to happen. You got to have oxygen and you got to have moisture. So, right. Oxygen is a, is a clear gas that reflects, refracts blue. And I brought about that discovery with my organization, the yeah. uh, Mars Anomaly Research Society. But I have to mention, what was it, Paul Goodwin of the United Kingdom and Andrew R. Steck of this country also found the blue skies on Mars. But mine was published back in 2008 when I published my paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars. Yeah. It's been out that long, as have water deposits on Mars. So thank you for the compliment. <laughs> that was a discovery that I certainly made on the red planet when I was there, but then I made technically with the photo uh, releases of anomalous photographs of of rovers by NASA. Uh, but yes, it has a kind of a pale blue sky. I've described mm-hmm. it as sort of a a baby blue, kind of like a light boy's blanket for kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and there, uh, and there were there were, there were many there were there were many browns as well. But there's been a lot of contributions to the Mars anomaly work of the Mars Anomaly Research Society, we're going to be trying to publish five to 10 really good images by about 25 of the major uh, Mars Anomaly uh, specialists that we've had. 15 from our organization and like 10 independents like uh, J.P. Skipper and people like that, Hassan mm-hmm. Saunders. You know, this has been some really excellent Mars uh, professional, you know, anomaly hunters. Mm-hmm. But don't expect to see it on t- television anytime soon. 
You know, they want to have uh, lights in the sky, not life forms on another planet in our solar system. That's verboten. One of the reasons I was told by Courtney Hunt of the CIA is because the Windsors make their greatest money on a yearly basis from the King James Version of the Bible. And they want to perpetuate the, the view of this planet as being the first origin point for life on our solar system. And so they don't want the people to know that another planet or planetoid um, is, is inhabited. Well, you know, I've shown how Mars is inhabited, both through my accounts of my experiences there and the anomaly work of myself and my fellows at Mars. Um, so it's pretty much indisputable at this point. And we have the pictorial evidence. Uh, I think about three, four years ago, Lori and I did a video documentary where we showed 25 pictures. And in those pictures, they came out of the gigapan pictures from Mars. And you have people in it. One person is standing, leaning up against a rock. And there are buildings. There are structures up that this cannot even be argued. It is there. So what was a civilization is a different one now, but there is people up there. We have the pictures, and this is exactly what you're talking about. Right. Right. So please refer to my landmark paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars, which was published on 12-12-08. Now, you mentioned gigapans, and I would be remiss not to credit my good friend and colleague, Neville Thompson. He was the chief supplier of the gigapans that the rest of us have taken and then brought things down to a smaller degree of resolution. And that's how we found these life forms and evidence of statues and sculptures and so forth on Mars. We saw them when we went. But everybody was asking for evidence of what we were talking about. And I just stayed away from my experiences and focused on the photographs initially. Uh, all, all 2008, I spent the whole year on it. And, you know, Neville kept our work going by just hashing out the, the gigapans because we can then take the gigapans and reduce the exposure of what we were looking at. You know, a lot of the life forms that have been seen in the pictures might be no bigger than a grasshopper. Uh, Some have have been huge. There are a lot of amazing discoveries to come. I mean, I've talked about the life forms on Mars and the photography of them in the Mars anomaly field as sort of like what's going to become the leading parlor game of this century, 21st century. It's going to just electrify the people when they realize how fascinating it is. But isn't it interesting that my vision was knocked out after writing such a landmark paper? It took a lot of good vision to find those things on the red planet. But that got very controversial after I started acknowledging what what the Defense Department had told me to shut up, shut up about for the rest of my life, that not only Mars was inhabited, but that we've been sending U.S. astronauts there since 1964. So it's a very complicated, uh, you know, set of historical events. The, you know, my dad showed had me read my paper in 1971, so that 
when I did write the paper, it would contain as much information about life forms on Mars. So that was one of, again, one of those sort of in, convoluted or involuted time travel subjects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you were the, when you, you were able to be outside and breathing as normal, right? I was outside, but I certainly wasn't breathing at normal. I, I often got hypoxia, a principal symptom of which is tunnel vision. When I was walking along with, you know, Brett Stillings and Courtney Hunt or Bernie Mendez and Barry Satoro, who would later change his name to Barack Obama, or Barry Satoro and Regina Dugan, um, who he appointed the first uh, woman in the 19th director of DARPA. So it was, it was a very, it was a group of very talented young people and sort of 15 year old or well, 25 year old, 35 year old elders. My dad went up once after he had already had a very bad heart attack when he was um, 53 in 1977, but he went up with me on my last trip, which was in 1964. So everybody in the program had to be, had to go up at least once, anybody furnishing anything to the program. So that would be Major Ed Dames, who was our first Mars training officer, my father, who was one of the scientists on the project, and and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when do you think any of this will actually come out to become somewhat public knowledge? Probably if I become president, and I don't think that's going to happen, because they're they're treating the American people as children, and it's disrespectful of me, everybody else who went, and there were many, and the American people. This nation was supposed to be the fulfillment of the Enlightenment, not treat adults like children, and they are. They're even now telling parents that they can mutilate their children, that they, the government, can make that choice. I consider that very distressing. It's a sick country. Yeah. We have to make a we have to make a sound decision of president in twenty twenty four, and now this benighted government is taking away Secret Service protection from the great RFK Jr. Um, clearly an enlightened individual. So that's what we're up against. We're up against a deep state that is now trying to dismantle our right to both pick and protect our own president. I ran against President Trump, so I don't think it would be true to describe me as a Trumper. I didn't run against him intentionally, and I'm quite proud of the different successes he had as president, like around peace accords and getting us out of bad treaties and so forth. But they're now trying to clearly prevent him from exercising his right, now that he's over 35 and has no criminal history and was born in this country, unlike uh, Barry Satoro, also known as Obama, who was born in Indonesia and told me that 40 years ago when we were sharing the same dorm room at College of the Siskiyous. But clearly they're trying to prevent Donald Trump from getting reelected, and they are risking the life of Bobby Kennedy by now taking away his Secret Service protection. So I'm afraid to say, I know it doesn't have anything to do with Mars per se, but I'm fairly sure that we're going to have to have a, a second American revolution. 
maybe I'll be asked to be the the George Washington in that battle because I met Washington when I was a kid uh, via Chronovision, but it doesn't look good because they're now arrogating to us what we should be doing, how we raise our kids, who we elect for president, who we protect as a presidential candidate when they're running, as if they can be discriminated against on that basis. But I have to tell Bobby Kennedy, I experienced the same thing. I ended up getting about 50,000 votes in about half the states, and I didn't have a lick of uh, Secret Service protection. Yeah. And my the the, um, the floaters in my eye, which basically began to make me blind, began a couple weeks after I wrote my platform, 100 Proposals. So I think the deep state's attempt to whittle away at the presidency began in probably before 2016, but certainly by 2016. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think to take somebody like myself who served the country going back to meet Washington and going to the Red Planet at the risk of my life with five post-secondary degrees from schools as qualitatively excellent as UCLA and Cambridge, and to have a mentor like Norman Cousins for three years, who was one of President Kennedy's principal speechwriters, those great Kennedy addresses, and that I was running and, um, uh, you know, having my platform described in such terms as excellent and brilliant and excellent and, and, and so forth mm-hmm. is really frightening. It's almost as if they don't want some of the most talented people in the country serving as president. I think that's ridiculous. You know, President Kennedy said the mind is the ultimate resource. Why not elect bright people yeah. like, for example, Bobby Kennedy Jr. to the presidency? His family has certainly paid a price for that service. And his father and uncle, um, Bobby Sr. And, and John Kennedy, were really brilliant academics. Mm-hmm. And they were really brilliant individuals. So why not mm-hmm. want such a country? And they don't. And that, that's frightening. I got one question uh, here, we're coming up towards the end of the show, but at this level, I almost said government, but this is not the government running this program. I think it is so deeply into the dark that government is not running it. I think there is a system of its own that is well-funded. Are they also the American part of it, working with the Russians and the Chinese, or is there cooperation between countries at that level of... No, although there were Russians, there were Russians very peaceable Russian fellow citizens of ours on on Mars when we were there, as well as British. But the key link that we have to add to the deep state equation is that the CIA itself was founded on my birthday, September 18th of 1947, because of Roswell. In other words, the connection of the deep state to its formation has been the ET presence. The, the, as they call it in the Intel community, the ET situation. Yeah. So my dad was working on that from 1952 to 84. And he and I ended up not only time traveling, but going off planet, possibly the first uh, father and son or parent and child to go off planet together. 
but I would I think you're putting a little bit too much mustard on the hot dog. The the organization running America and running our elections and running our problems like COVID-19 is the CIA. The CIA was founded because of the ET presence. And that's the connection. So it's not, you know, the government or some other thing or like some conspiracy with another world power or something. The the decision of Harry Truman to create the CIA has led to all this. And when President Kennedy said he was going to break the CIA up into a thousand pieces, they shot his head off. And that was, as Bobby Kennedy has suggested, and I think he's right, the CIA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that gets us in the more difficult question of how do we, how do we make the CIA a responsible organization? Again, that's not killing presidents, sending people to other planets without paying them, without medically testing them after they go. Um, that uses censorship to allow a diversity of opinion about a, a deadly um, uh, pandemic and a deadly set of alleged vaccines when we were told that that COVID-19 was a retrovirus and, and uh, therefore uh, it was a, uh, was not susceptible to being helped by, by a vaccine and the, the vaccines offered were not, they were genetic experiments where they crispered in glycoprotein 120. So this is a really difficult question. We start getting censored by essentially the CIA dominated mass media, not the alternative folks, but the mass media. What do we do? How do we get our liberty back? We're losing it. And that's why it was always talking about my experiences, time traveling and going to Mars. Because I was denied every last thing I was promised, from my salary to the GI Bill of Rights to a zero-interest home loan to buy a house in Redding, California, to money for time traveling that that my um, Army adjutant at Curtis Wright turned my father down, which was going to be thirty thousand U.S. dollars by nineteen my birthday in nineteen. 86, which, which you know, would have been my 25th That's birthday. They do. And right. uh, see, we're coming down towards the end here. Uh, how can people connect with you? And you got publications that you they need to see? Um, I'm gathering the publications now. I've done about, oh gosh, about 12 network television shows and um, about 600 radio shows originating in uh, 15 foreign countries. So I would just try to get past the, what is it called? The uh, band, uh, shadow banding. I'm not being shadow banned. I'm sort of being treated as a man without a country. It doesn't matter to the deep state that I um, met with Washington and went to Mars and had won the Space Medal of Honor in Mars for carrying Bernie Mendez a mile on my right shoulder in oxygen conditions that are kind of like where um, mountains are at at 14,000 feet. It just matters that they're running everything and I'm owed nothing. So I don't really know what to tell people because I've been shadow banded to the point where there might be 
20 radio shows featuring me easy to find. But I've got about half of my performances saved. I can't say where they are, but they'll be up again. I remember that we Uh, talked you said you had a book coming out. Is that out yet? No, the great American nation won't let me both make money at anything and receive medical benefits. And I will die if I don't get dialysis. So they have essentially taken away my First Amendment right to freedom of speech and the press. And I will be suing. And the whole country were hearing about it right around the time they they, they decide that there's to some big do changes. the Second American Revolution. There's changes coming, so there's hope for everybody. And uh, now we're down to the We want to thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, uh, Augie, and uh, and uh, huh? sorry, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it was great. It was great talking with you again. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm bitter. Yeah, I don't want to sound like a bitter case, but I am. Um, I'd yeah. like to see America do the right thing again, and I'd like to have that supported by the American people doing the right thing again. And one of those is not stealing somebody else's valor. So you know, I, when I started telling the truth about those who were. Um, uh, lying. <laughs> I was told, Andy, you can't criticize your colleagues. It'll hurt your career. And when has ever that been true in America, Nori? I mean, think about that. You know, it, 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 would would somebody who said they were in the Olympics have to tolerate somebody lying saying they were in the Olympics? Remember that guy who came into the uh, Olympic Stadium in Berlin in 1972? When the American yeah. Frank Shorter was running through the, through the tunnel, yeah, uh, Eric was Eric Siegel, his professor from Yale, um, was yelling, yeah. "Frank, he's I'm an sorry imposter. to say Don't that." I'm sorry to say the producer is going to shut us off in about twenty seconds. So we yeah. thank you very much for being with us, and everybody out there will be back next week. So thank you for being with us. And one thing, guys, before you go, please hit the thumbs up so we can break through our algorithm. We're we're going for 10,000 subscribers. So please give us a little boost with that. Thanks, everybody. Come see us Sunday night, the Paranormal Show, 9 p.m. And the Quantum Wellbeing Show, half hour, Friday night, 730. That's both Eastern. Much love, everybody. Take care of each other. Good night. Thank you, Andrew. Good night. Good night.